This evening we'll continue our <clears throat> exploration of equanimity. And I'd like to just review a little bit uh, briefly uh, of what we um, explored last evening. <clears throat> and beginning with a definition of equanimity. Equanimity being the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium, the balance of the heart, the mind, its capacity to experience all kinds of change. This fearlessness, power, and the balance of the heart, the mind, to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external experience and in the realm of feeling. And as I have mentioned, feeling in the context of the Dharma uh, is the pleasant or the unpleasant feeling that's associated with the arising, the changing, and the passing of internal and external phenomena. So this great strength of heart and mind to remain centered, to remain unmoved in the midst of it all. And I mentioned the Pali word upekka for uh, equanimity, which the literal translation is on looking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral stance, a neutral mode, by staying in the center, by staying in the middle, watching things, knowing them as they arise, as they pass. And it, in this onlooking, it sees them fairly, meaning it sees them without bias, it sees them without any favoritism, without any prejudice, without any partiality. So equanimity is impartial. It's neither, and in the realm of feeling, it's neither pleasant feeling nor unpleasant feeling. So neutral. And then I also spoke a little bit about the Buddha's uh, uh, definition, uh, uh, his term, uh, around uh, in relationship to equanimity, a specific neutrality. So meaning that whatever states arise in consciousness, whatever is present in consciousness, including uh, all of the divine abidings, the sublime states as they're sometimes called, loving kindness, compassion, mudita, appreciative joy, um, and equanimity, and mindfulness, investigation, energy, interest, tranquility, concentration, patience, faith. All of it is seen and looked on evenly through this heart, this mind of equanimity. So there's an evenness in the connection uh, and seeing and knowing an evenness in the heart, an 
an evenness in the mind. So consequently, upekka or equanimity manifests as quieting fear, quieting dislike, resentment, self-judgment, all of these states that can arise in the mind that can, can show up as guilt or disapproval or we feel not good enough. And it also manifests as quieting pride, attachment. And I spoke a little bit about the various judgments, judgments of approval or disapproval in relationship to what we think of as me or mine, my experiences. It also quiets the judgments in relationship to others of approval or disapproval. Because approval is also a judgment. We often think of it in the negative, but it's also a judgment. So this clear space of neutrality, specific, true neutrality. And when that's manifesting, there is nothing for greed, nothing for aversion to stick to if they show up. They're known in this space of neutrality. And then I spoke a little bit about the first of the uh, two particular understandings or insights uh, that are, are the root of equanimity. And the first being our understanding of karma. And just a very a brief review about that, because uh, I'd like to go on to the second insight. So this understanding of karma, the understanding that the various experiences of suffering, of stress, of dis-ease, and the experiences of ease, the happy experiences that come from a sense of well-being, are the result of our karma, the result of our actions. And I spoke about actions meaning actions of thought, speech and deed right here and now in this lifetime and back and back and back our inheritance this is our karma this is karma so we could say that everything that happens to us and the ease or dis-ease in the heart and the mind in relationship to all of the happenings is the outcome of our mind, our own mind. This is very crucial. Our own mind and then the deeds that follow. So our suffering or our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind. Our motivations and our actions of speech and body. It's not due to our wishes or due to some other person or some 
outer, positive or antagonistic, seemingly strange or odd person or world. It's really due to our own mind. So that's the first insider that is the basis of equanimity, this understanding of karma. And as we understand it more deeply, connect with it and understand it more deeply, uh, as I mentioned last night, we, at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddhist disciples, more and more the misery and evil rooted in the past ceases. And in this present life, I try to make it as spotless and pure as possible. What else then can the future bring other than an increase of good? I think that as we understand the teachings of karma and the process of karma, uh, it becomes a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering. It becomes a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. So that's the first insight. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, the teaching and the understanding of no-self. So from this perspective, there's no one, there's no self performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the delusion of a separate, solid self, a separate me, that creates suffering and uh, disturbs equanimity. So that sounds maybe puzzling. (laughs) So we'll explore it a little bit. If we claim ownership this is mine, this is me, this is who I am. The vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering, always. So for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality, uh, if this or that quality of ours is criticized or blamed, One thinks, I am blamed. And equanimity is disturbed, shaken. Or we receive approval or praise for something that we've done. And one thinks, I've been praised, I'm a success. And equanimity is disturbed. 
if any particular this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way that we want it to be. One thinks my work's failed or maybe we think I failed. And of course, equanimity is shaken, disturbed. If wealth, however much we have, our wealth, or if a loved one is lost, one thinks what's mine is gone. And equanimity is disturbed, it's shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion of identification of mine, me, I am. An unshakable equanimity of heart is established by giving up, relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine, which that thought itself may be quite daunting. So we begin with the small things, from which it's relatively easy to detach oneself and then gradually working up to the possessions, goals, and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. Some years ago, the first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts, was for two months, and I was the very first visiting teacher there. And I was there during that time, two months, long enough to really settle in. And yet, again and again and again, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in wasn't mine. And it came about in small and simple and actually sometimes quite surprising ways. When I first got there, there wasn't a telephone in the house. And it was actually difficult not to have a telephone in the house. For instance, if I wanted to uh, check or send email, I had to carry my computer over to the yogi telephone room in the, another building, the administration building. So I lobbied for a phone, which um, in moments felt like it was for me. It was going to be my phone. And there was quite a lot of tension, quite a lot of stress in this. But in truth, of course, the phone was for many, many others who would be using that house over many, many years. But I forgot that every now and then. And it was very tense when I would forget it. At one point, after some considerable discussions, <laughs> I was told that... Uh, it was okayed that a phone would be put into the house. But when that was going to happen was unknown. So at that point, there was this quick just letting go. And it just, no more thoughts about it came up. It just didn't matter. I relaxed, and it didn't matter if the phone was going to be put in while I was there, while I was in the house, or not. 
because it was clear. It became very clear that it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. Great relief. <laughs> and then it was decided um, that to purchase a house or a rug for the living room of the house. So Jeannie, the housekeeper, brought over the um, rug catalog for us to uh, decide which rug to order, since I happened to be the teacher that was there and uh, the first one. Clearly, the rug wasn't for me because it wasn't my house. And uh, we were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone, actually. And I noticed there was such a difference in the experience in my heart with this. There wasn't this subtle contraction of something being mine, being for me. Take a look in your own life at that. There was really an openness, a spaciousness. There wasn't any contraction, no clinging in the choosing. It was much more fun, actually. So the small things at first, and then working up to giving up or letting go, relinquishing such thoughts of self, beginning with <coughs> objects of seeming minor importance, that we think are ours, and then beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that were identified as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up that we let go of, beginning with small aspects of our personality, qualities of kind of minor importance, and then very slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship to maybe those emotions and aversions that we re may regard as the very center of our being. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. Remember that. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way that he um, has practiced with this. He says when a particular habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, which has been a long-standing uh, karmic predicament of his. He says, oh, there's my personality. <laughs> Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? even including emotions, aversions, which we might regard, might be identified with as the center of who we think we are, as the center of our being. As we let go of, as we relinquish thoughts of mine, me, 
self, equanimity will enter our heart to the degree that we let go of these thoughts. Equanimity will enter our heart. In fact, how could anything we realize, really truly realize as not me, not mine, not who I am, cause us any agitation at all due to greed or lust or hatred, fear or grief? If we really realize and don't identify with, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. It's all conditional. It comes, it goes. It doesn't belong to us. The teachings and the practice of no self, as it's called, these are our guide on the path to freedom, to liberation. They're our guide on the path to perfect or absolute or what's sometimes called holy equanimity. There's a teaching that um, the Buddha offered to his son Rahula, uh, which actually we heard, uh, I offered uh, uh, Vyasariputta, who when he gave his lion's roar, he reiterated uh, some of this teaching. Uh, but I'd like to uh, repeat it in a somewhat different way, because this is the actual teaching that the Buddha gave to his son um, and it's, it's called, the title of this uh, sutta is Advice to Rahula on the Four Great Elements. And it's interesting to know uh, the preliminary of why the Buddha gave this teaching to his son. He gave teachings for, always for a reason, always in response to something that was going on. And the story in relationship to this teaching is that um, while Rahula, the Buddha's uh, 18-year-old son, uh, one day he was, um, I tell if I can, need my glasses or not, this point. <laughs> uh, was following uh, the Buddha on this particular day as they were on their way into the village for their alms round. And he was walking um, with his father, and he um, noted with great admiration the physical beauty and perfection of his father. And then he reflected with lots of pride that he himself was of similar appearance, thinking, I too am like my father, the Blessed One. The Buddha's form is beautiful, and so too is mine. Well, his father being the Buddha, the Buddha read Rahula's mind. <laughs> Difficult to have a father like that. And he, he read Rahula's thoughts and decided that right then and there he should admonish him. Because such vain thoughts would lead him to much greater difficulties. And so it would catch it on the spot, thought the Buddha. So the Buddha framed his advice in terms of contemplating the body neither as a self nor as a possession of the self. And Rahula felt quite uh, rightly scolded by his father, and so he decided to sit down under a tree beside the road uh, and to reflect on this admonishment and the teaching 
and uh, rather than continuing into the village with his father for the alms rounds. But within a few moments, uh, he got quite distracted by a conversation with another monk who was passing by, which of course the Buddha knew. So, so the following teaching, the teaching on the four great elements, was given to Rahula the next day uh, in order to show this quality of impartiality, equanimity, in order to dispel Rahula's attachment to the body because the teaching the day before didn't work. <laughs> uh, on egolessness, it just it, it didn't connect. So the Buddha used the four great elements uh, in this teaching uh, an equanimity as both a metaphor and as a direct teaching in relationship to the body itself. The body itself simply being a composite of the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element, which is really what we are. And it's moving and changing all the time. And then he also added the element of space, and meaning by this all of the openings, all of the apertures in the body internally, and all of the space around everywhere externally. So I'll just, uh, it's a repetition to some degree of what uh, 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 Sariputta said in his Lion's Roar, but it's such, a, it's such a beautiful teaching. I don't think it hurts to hear it more than once. <laughs> Very powerful teaching. And this is the Buddha speaking to his son. And by the way, there are a number of suttas <clears throat> in the text where they're directly from the Buddha to his son. And I find those particular suttas some of the most wonderful and inspiring because there's actually an intimacy in the process of the conversation between the two of them, like this little story and uh, the way that the wording is, who knows, remembered you know, by whoever uh, finally wrote it down. But uh, there's a kind of intimacy that sometimes appears and sometimes doesn't appear in relationship to the other uh, teachings, because he's always teaching to somebody, either a group or uh, uh, an individual or a couple of individuals, and there's always a reason for it. it. It doesn't come out of the ethers. It's always connected in some way. Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, Arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, the earth is not horrified and humiliated and disgusted because of that. So too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Rahula, develop meditation that is like water. For when you develop meditation that is like water, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people wash clean things and dirty things in water, the water is not horrified, etc. Rahula, develop meditation that is like fire. 
For when you develop meditation that is like fire, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts won't invade your mind and remain. Just as fire burns clean things and dirty things, fire is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted. Rahula, develop meditation that is like air. Just as the air blows on clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, the air is not horrified or humiliated or disgusted because of this. So Rahula, develop meditation that is like the air. Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So essentially, this is our practice. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we let go of thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. Equanimity is the perfect, perfectly unshakable balance of mind, of heart, that's rooted in insight. The heart, the mind of this specific neutrality, equanimity, it's not cold, it's not heartless, it's not dull. It doesn't occur or manifest out of a kind of emotional emptiness. It's really out of a fullness, a completeness of connection and understanding that equanimity arises. At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. And we'll develop an equanimity of really the highest strength and the clearest insight. The mind-heart fruit, or deliverance as it's called in the suttas of equanimity, is the escape, as it said, in the suttas, the escape from craving, the escape from greed. And the Pali word for greed or craving, as we have seen it translated most often, is tanha. But the literal translation is thirst, which I think is a very descriptive experience, uh, experiential uh, translation. So the mind, heart, Fruit or deliverance of equanimity is the escape from that insatiable thirst that we live our life out of. That runs us, actually, until it doesn't anymore. 
In the Buddha's words, he said, just as all the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen, such is the nature of what he called holy equanimity. I read a description once of, uh, of one who is awakened. And it was likened to uh, a clear, well-cut crystal. So I'd like to share that with you. The mind and heart of an awakened one is likened to a clear, well-cut crystal. And because it's clear without stains, it fully absorbs all the rays of light and sends them out again, intensified by the power and the purity of its focused energy. The crystal can't be tainted by the colors of the rays. Its hardness can't be pierced. Its perfectly harmonious structure can't be disturbed. In its purity and strength, the crystal remains unchanged. As awakening beings, we begin to get a taste every now and then of this unshakable equanimity. When there's no clinging, in a moment of no clinging, in a moment of non-clinging, there's unshakable equanimity. And this is our possibility. As an aid, as a nutriment for the arising and the development of equanimity, the Buddha offers us some very, actually very specific uh, directions. So I'd like to share some of these with you, very practical. He tells us to listen to, approach, attend to, and to recollect, go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and the vision of awakening. He tells us that hearing the Dhamma or the Dharma from such people is helpful. He tells us to dwell mindfully and investigate states, and that if we investigate with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, there's a spiritual joy that's aroused and developed. And then he goes on to say, when one's mind and heart is uplifted with a spiritual joy, 
the body becomes tranquil. And when the body becomes tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. And we're told that for one whose body is tranquil and who's quietly happy in the heart and the mind, that the mind then is easily focused, easily concentrated. And when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And we're also told that there are some particular conditions in our life, our everyday life, that will help towards the arising, the development of equanimity. We're told to maintain neutrality. Now this is, you know, a practice. So (laughs) maintain a neutrality toward living beings. Practice neutrality toward living beings. The teaching is to maintain, but first we have to practice. (laughs) Practice and then maintain neutrality toward inanimate objects. Don't spend a lot of time with possessive people. Associate with people who practice and maintain neutrality toward beings and inanimate objects. And then lastly, we're told to make a resolve, to incline the heart, to incline the mind towards the arising, the development, the fulfillment, and the perfection of equanimity. As our practice develops and deepens, we really begin to know when equanimity is present in us and to know when it's not present in us. And that might sound like a simple thing, but it's not so easy to really know when there's a true equanimity and when it's not really equanimity. So we begin to know it as our practice deepens. And we begin to know how it comes about, how it arises. And that's all very, very helpful. I'd like to um, spend a little bit of time now looking at the interrelationship between all of the four uh, Brahma-viharas or the four divine abidings or sublime states as they're sometimes called. Um, How these four immeasurables pervade, suffuse, and support each other since we've been practicing this week with some of them and looking at others, talking about others. And I mentioned a couple of these this morning. Um, Unconditional kindness, unconditional loving kindness, metta, gives to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature. And the warmth, the warm feeling, the enthusiasm, the zeal that is sometimes present with metta, it also imparts that to equanimity.
It strengthens equanimity. It helps to make it sharp and clear, metta, through this warmth, through this enthusiasm, through this zeal. It helps to keep it balanced and strengthens it. Looking at, we're going to look at all of them and how they work together and infuse each other. Compassion, karuna, compassion, keeps metta, unconditional kindness, and mudita, sympathetic joy, from forgetting that both of these give enjoyment, love and sympathetic joy, give enjoyment and some degree of happiness, and at the same time, compassion keeps them balanced in relationship to the difficulties in the world, the suffering in the world, so that the mind doesn't get lost or attached to the um, particular limited joys and happinesses of love and sympathetic joy, so that there's a wholeness in our relationship to things. Compassion actually guards equanimity from falling into a kind of indifference, a kind of cold indifference, and keeps it from being lazy or lethargic and kind of self-isolated, kind of a selfish, selfish isolation. Because until equanimity is really developed, really mature, compassion keeps urging us uh, to enter again and again and again into the world in order to develop, to grow. Uh, And it keeps strengthening the um, capacity for us to enter into the world in an even, unruffled way. So equanimity and compassion working together, balancing each other. And of course, as I mentioned when I talked about mudita, mudita helps compassion or keeps it from uh, getting lost or overwhelmed by all of the suffering in the world and getting kind of lost and absorbed in the pit and the, the maze of all the suffering in the world. Sympathetic joy relieves the tension, the stress, is soothing to us, soothing to the compassionate heart. And it also keeps compassion from kind of brooding, getting melancholy, which we all know, you know, when there's a lot of suffering, sometimes we can get lost in a kind of brooding, melancholy pit or stuck or mud uh, and there's no purpose we're just lost there and it's very debilitating and it weakens the heart weakens the mind 
sympathetic joy develops, helps to develop ca- uh, compassion into an active compassion, an active connection. And it's said that sympathetic joy uh, uh, gives equanimity a kind of soft serenity. Because sometimes equanimity can appear as being kind of stern and cold, although in its truth it's not. But uh, the sympathetic joy, the joy part, gives it a kind of serenity and a kind of juice that helps, helps juice it up, so to say. <laughs> and, and I mentioned uh, uh, the image, the Buddha images that have these little smiles on their face. Um, it's really that, the kind of divine smile on the face of the Buddha that persists in spite of uh, the very deep knowledge of all the suffering in the world that an enlightened heart uh, knows. The smile is that quiet joy and imparts in some way uh, it's kind of a solace and hope, uh, fearlessness, confidence. And in the words of the Buddha, it's an invitation. The words of the Buddha are wide open, are the doors to deliverance. It's wide open for us. And uh, somehow that smile maybe lets us know that. Equanimity that's rooted in insight, as we've spoken a little bit about this evening, is really the guiding and the restraining power for all of the other three uh, divine abidings. It helps to point them in the direction that they really need to take, and then helps to keep them in going in that direction. So we could say that equanimity guards metta, loving-kindness, and compassion from being kind of dissipated in vain quests, from getting lost in the maze and the pit of uncontrolled emotion. And as I mentioned this morning, I think, I'm not sure when I said this, but this even-mindedness of equanimity is what really gives metta, gives unconditional kindness, its unchanging firmness and its loyalty. That great strength of, of unchanging firmness and loyalty. And it really uh, helps engender the amazing virtue of patience. It's really the 
stability and the balance of, of character of, of us, of a person, uh, that weaves all the various virtues, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, faith, patience, uh, many more, uh, into really an organic uh, whole, a harmonious whole. I think of it as a tapestry. And it's equanimity that um, is the ground of that stability and balance in our character that allows all of these virtues to weave themselves into a whole, into a tapestry. And then allows each of these qualities of character, these capacities, to um, exhibit their best, their very best to show up in the best way and act out in the best way, clearest and purest way, rather than kind of falling into uh, what might be particular pitfalls that each of them have. And so the function of equanimity uh, is really that it contributes to the ideal relationship between all of the four divine abidings. It's really the, um, the crowning ground, two sides, of, of uh, all four of these, or all, th- all three of the other three of the divine abidings. And so we practice. We practice here in retreat, and we practice at home in the midst of our daily lives, both formal practice and our life as our practice. And we practice with sincerity, we practice with diligence. As awakening beings, We practice with aspiration. We practice with determination. And because of all this, because of our practice, it's inevitable that for each of us that each of the wholesome factors of heart and all of the liberating insights will sprout, will blossom, and will eventually mature within us. It's our karma, because we practice. That's our karma. Not bad karma. (laughs) And so I'd like to close the talk this evening with um, two short pieces from the uh, Udana, which are uh, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Who stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger, when his or her heart, mind, is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her or him? And the 
next inspired utterance from the Buddha. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. When neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. That one's a little hard to understand, but don't think about it. Just let it be. (laughs) So let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.